Let's Talk Native is produced at the LTN Studios on the Cattaraugus territory of the Seneca Nation. We break all the rules for native media by peeling back the layers of assimilation and indoctrination. We may step on a few toes through our examination of culture, art, politics, history, and identity. But the real goal here is to bring our people together by breaking down what separates us. So, welcome to Let's Talk Native with John Kane. Sigal, and thanks for joining me. I'm John Kane, and I've got to talk about a subject that I, I look, I've mentioned previously on my radio shows and even on uh, this podcast, but I want to do a show specifically dedicated not just to Indian residential slash boarding schools, but I want to concentrate on, on, the, on the sheer scope and, and scale of what this era was. Because, you know, as I, as I talk to people about this, as I do interviews, uh, especially with the you know, recent uh, Supreme Court uh, hearing of testimony on the Indian Child Welfare Act, I, I still am just amazed that, that most people don't understand the magnitude of what, the, of what this era was. Or, or what the era was in terms of the, the length of time and, and when it started and when it ended. So that's what I want to talk about here. In 1819, there was a law passed called the, the Civilization Fund Act. Now, this law was, was passed to encourage the activities of benevolent societies, meaning churches, primarily Catholic and uh, Protestant churches that were already taking children into their custody and purportedly educating them in their schools. So boarding schools existed before the federal government was actually, at least on paper, actively funding um, funding them. They were existing through the, the, uh, the broad finances of, uh, of both Protestant and Catholic churches. But in 1819, they passed the Civilization Fund Act, which went towards paying these churches to not only fund their activity, their benevolent activity, but specifically it was, it was geared towards assimilation. And it's in the legislation. The Civilization Fund Act was to was to fund the, civiliz the civilizing of native, uh, of native children. That would begin the ball rolling. As we move farther into that 18th century, you would have this same piece of legislation, the Civilization Fund Act, be used almost exclusively to fund and develop residential schools. The Carlisle Indian School, which is one of the more famous ones, which existed um, from 1879 to, to 1918. Now, that may not seem like a long period of time in the overall scheme of things, but it was the flagship. And that Carlisle Indian School would, even after its closing, would still be the model that other schools would be built upon. So 
again, let, let's, let's put it in, into context here. 1819, that's James Monroe. That's a decade after Jefferson was president. John Quincy Adams. I, look, I not, know everybody, everybody's not a history buff. But 1819 is when the federal government has become a full, fully engaged partner in the process of forced assimilation via these schools, these church-run schools, and would, and would elevate that commitment to the point where, again, during Carlisle with uh, Colonel Pratt suggesting that the policy of the federal government and of these schools was to kill the Indian and save the man. I mean, we could argue whether we were even the people they were trying to save with this process. I mean, was killing us about saving them? Because killing Native kids did occur in these schools. Some were violently murdered. Some were neglected to the point of death. I mean, some were, were tortured, beaten, raped. They, they were uh, sterilized. Many, uh, many young women were sterilized. I mean, it, it is an incredible thing that took place. Okay, I said 20, uh, uh, 1819. So what, but when did this horror end? There are still four schools in existence today operated by the Bureau of Indian Affairs. Four, still today. <laughs> in, I, I think it was in 2019, um, it was uh, reported that the, um, uh, the Bureau of Indian Affairs was no longer in the business of assimilation. No longer in the business of assimilation. That now they were, you know, had been transformed into, into something else. I mean, it's, that's 20, that's only, only a few years ago that they're finally saying that they're no longer in the business of assimilation. And why would that be? Do they feel like that work was completed? Because is there a school, any place in the United States or Canada for that matter, and I'm not talking about, you know, these, uh, these native run, you know, um, uh, schools that are, they're really geared you know, uh, again, w towards language and that kind of stuff. I'm talking about state-sponsored schools. Are there any that, that don't incorporate some level of indoctrination? Not even native schools. I mean, every public school, every private school is geared towards some level of assimilation and indoctrination. It's what they do. Conformity is what schools are all about. I mean, there's no school in the United States, state-sponsored school that promotes native autonomy or sovereignty. I mean, I'm not saying there aren't schools that don't teach some culture or at least some revised or some managed uh, definition of culture, I guess. I mean, there, there, are, there are language programs in some of the schools that have high uh, levels of, of native population. But there are no schools that are promoting us as sovereign, uh, as sovereign nations. So they're all, at some level, these, these institutions of assimilation. Still today, I mean, the Bureau of Indian Affairs can say that they are no longer in the business of assimilation. But 
Of course they are. I mean, we see this with, with every with, with, with every election, with, with every um, history lesson, with every engagement between Native people and, the non and their non-Native counterparts, there's a, certain, a, a level of this assimilation that goes on. But what concerns me is we're looking at this as if this is something that happened. And it happened to previous generations. And it did. But it's still happening today. When we talk about these residential schools, we have to understand, no, it wasn't 100 years. It wasn't 150 years. And that's the number that I've been using. I've been using 150 years. It's been, it's been 200 years of using the education system in the United States in its various forms and our children. There, I mean, again, let me say this again. There are still four schools where our children live in these schools. Still four today, 2022. I mean, and you only got to go back to the, you know a few years when there was dozens of them still. And you don't have to go back very far to where there were hundreds of them. Now, some of these this, this residential school stuff is making news today, mostly because of having gone through the so-called Truth and Reconciliation Commission in, in Canada, there was attention given to the number of kids who, were, who died in those schools. Now, Canada would lift no finger to determine if, if and how many unmarked graves there were in Canada. So many of the native territories took it upon themselves. And there's been thousands of children discovered buried on the sites of these residential schools. Thousands of them on the Canadian side alone. And only, I think it's, it's, it's been less than a dozen. I think only about a half dozen schools have really done the ground penetrating radar and that kind of stuff to determine that these, these mass or unmarked graves existed. And of course, there are marked graves as well. Carlisle Indian School, I mentioned them already. They had 200, over 200 marked graves with stones and everything. So some of them had, had the names on them said unknown. I don't know how you have a kid in your school that you don't have a name for, especially since you were changing the names of all the children that came into those schools. But again, my, what I want to accomplish here is I want to, want to fully put out there, explain the scale of this stuff. I mean, it's, I mean, it is, it's, it's pretty damn remarkable. I mean, in the 50s, in the 1950s, they passed the Indian Placement Program. And, they, and, and this operated for over 40 years where Native kids were being sent to live with the Mormons. 50,000 students were, were sent into Mormon foster care because this isn't just about residential schools. This is about the unholy relationship between residential schools, foster care, and adoption in the United States and on the Canadian side. And, and I've got to mention all of this stuff because at its core, it still comes down to one of those those key tenets of a genocide where our children are removed.
So whether they were moved to residential schools and those residential schools served as a pipeline to foster care and, uh, and, and adoption, or whether it's just the foster care system or the adoption system. Now, in, in uh, 1978, when they passed ICWA during, during the Carter administration, there was some sense, and, and the way it's been kind of re reported today, I mean, we look back at 1978, and that's when I graduated from high school, by the way. I've heard it said, and, and in fact, I may have repeated this because of having heard it, that essentially ICWA put an end to, uh, to, to boarding schools. No. It didn't. It didn't. It highlighted the problems of boarding, boarding schools and the horrors and the terrors and the abuses and all that other stuff that boarding schools and foster care was having. Now, it was not being challenged, and I'm going to talk about that a little bit later. Um, but ICWA didn't end residential schools. During the 80s and the 90s, so in, in the next decade or so, many of the schools closed. Not all of them. Not all of them. And many of the ones who stayed open, they were primarily the ones that were still on Native territories. They weren't, you know, the miles and miles away. Some of the horror stories associated with, with kids being ripped from their homes and sent hundreds or thousands of miles away from their home. It's not so much that. They were on territories. And they became run by the so-called tribes or the Bureau of Indian Affairs. Now, I've got to do an aside here. I, I'm, I do this program here on the Cattaraugus Territory of Seneca Nation. Cattaraugus had, had an Indian boarding school. It wasn't part of the, the federal program. It was funded by the state. So the Thomas Indian School here on the Cattaraugus Territory of Seneca Nation, which has its own history of abuses and, you know, and, and horrors that Native kids went through. It was started with this, all this great, again, this benevol benevolent society, right? All these great intentions that somebody wanted to help Native children because of the extreme poverty that Native territories were in. And I'm going to talk about that in just a second. And what began as a school that was getting state funding from their education department at the time, ultimately had all of that funding and control and oversight given to their, their board of charities. And that was a pretty sour turn because Native kids at that point in New York State were all being dubbed as mentally deficient, handicapped, irredeemable. And that's where some of the state, uh, you know, the state level abuses began to take place with, with places like the Thomas Indian School and others. But let me let me go back to what I just just mentioned about children being removed from households for arguably good good reasons, poverty, abuse, neglect. Okay, I agree. Uh, alcoholism. I agree that that those those were in fact the realities of our life, and and in many places, in many ways, still are. But why? Why is there such poverty on Native territories? Well, that's because of U.S. policy. The poverty on our territories is by design. It's not an accident. 
It's not a failure necessarily of, of Native people. We had our, our valuable, lush, valuable lands stolen from us, squeezed from us. We had the means for thriving, successful lives taken away. He was intentional to make us dependent on the federal government. And everything from food, money, all that stuff. And then we listen to decade after decade after decade of U.S. politicians say, well, the reservation system's a failure. You created that. We didn't have a reservation system. We, we just had our lives. You created that reservation system. You created that poverty. And alcoholism? Alcohol was requisitioned in the treaty-making process. Alcohol was introduced to our, I mean, people talk about crack cocaine in the black communities. Well, there was a lesson that they had to, uh, they, they could derive that strategy from. And that was alcohol into our territory. And of course, crack cocaine, methamphetamine, uh, opioids, cocaine, all of that stuff. That, all of that stuff has been supplied to our territory. I mean, and this is well documented. So the poverty, the substance abuse, Oh, yeah, and, and for all of this talk about residential schools and BIA, the, the Bureau of Indian Education, our education system is terrible. It's deplorable. And it's not by accident. It's by design. Even, you know, again, this, this assistant secretary to the Bureau of Indian, uh, of Indian Education who said that assimilation was no longer, you know, they were no longer in the business of assimilation. They were under a lot of scrutiny in this century, <laughs> in this decade, about the inadequacies of the Bureau of Indian Affairs' role in, in education. So we've got to talk about 200 years of abuse both in these schools and as a part of these schools and their ancillary foster care adoption programs, much of which still continue today. And if you don't believe they don't, they don't continue today, then we only have to look back at this, at this previous week, the fact that the U.S. Supreme Court is hearing a case where Chad, the white guy, is trying to play the savior to, to, to Native children. And wants to overturn ICWA. Now, let me talk about ICWA a little bit. ICWA, the Indian Child Welfare Act, passed again in, in the 70s, signed into law by Jimmy Carter, was an attempt at some rudimentary level to acknowledge the abuses that had been taking place up to that point. But it didn't end them. ICWA in spite of some of the language that I've read that says, oh yeah, it, it gave native tribes exclusive jurisdiction over their children. No, it didn't. You couldn't give it to us anyway. That's, that should have been acknowledged all along. The department, the, the people who are removing children from their homes today, today are state uh, child protective services, CPS. It's, and, and most native territories, most native governments, don't have their own CPS. It's the states that do it. What ICWA did was create guardrails. 
that said, okay, when you remove that child from a native, ha a native household, you've got to place them with a relative or another native household in that, in that community or another native community. But it's the states that are still implementing that law. We aren't. We aren't implementing. Now, I'm not saying there isn't a relationship between some tribal courts um, and the placement of children. I mean, I, again, I live here on the Cattaraugus territory of the Seneca Nation. The, the Seneca Nation courts can deal with, with child custody issues. And the state recognizes it. And the state defers to it. And the, and the schools and everybody, they, they, but not because of federal law, you know, frankly, because I don't think the states really want to be in that business. But, you know, there are, there are driving forces here. There are some white people like Chad, Chad Brackeen, that somehow have this obsession with grabbing Native children. Now, they provided foster care to a, to a child who was the, the child of a, of a woman who had a serious drug problem, and I think both mother and father were, were pretty much unfit. This is in Texas. And they, uh, they took the kid into foster care, knowing that they're already told by the Navajo Nation, who is, I, I guess, the, the, the nation, uh, um, essentially, that this child is, is, is of, said, you likely will not you know, have permanent placement of this child. But they went for it anyway. And ultimately, they, they got it. I think the, the Navajo Nation, not in Texas, by the way. I mean, we're talking about a nation, you know, Navajo territory out in the Four Corners area. They approved the adoption. Now, the same woman who, who lost her parental rights to this child had another child. And then this, this family moved, uh, immediately moved in. Now, it wasn't the same father, but the same mother. And said, well, we want this one, too. And the Navajo Nation says, no, we're going to place this with, with the child's aunt. And so that, now this, this family is fighting to overturn ICWA, saying it's archaic, it's outdated. Look, I'm not a fan of ICWA, and I'm going to tell you why. I'm not a fan of ICWA because it doesn't place us as the primary um, uh, authority over the placement of our own children. And look, I know it gets complicated. Because poverty, which has been, which was induced on, onto our territory by federal policy, and the number of Native people who don't live in a Native community who, who, who are falling through the cracks of every urban uh, environment in the United States, they don't have necessarily, they're, they're not living under Native governments necessarily. So what do you do when, when a, a Native woman who lives in, Dallas, Texas, has a child. I mean, it, it becomes a little strange to defer to the Navajo Nation hundreds of miles away when this woman may not even have much of a connection to that territory anymore. So I, I understand how complicated it gets. And, this, and herein lies the problem with having our identity destroyed for 200 years, having those connections to our family and to our community and to our nations destroyed for 200 years. So you, you spend two centuries doing that to our people and they say, well, see there, you don't have much of a family connection. You don't, you're not good parents. Well, you, you spent 200 years destroying our, our, that skill set, that multi-generational connection between children, mother, 
grandmother, great-grandmother, aunts, cousins. You destroyed that. You've been destroying it. So much so that you say, oh, in, 20, in uh, 2019, we're no longer in the assimilation business. Why? Your work is done here? Look, we need to understand, before we get into any conversations about truth and reconciliation, the first truths that need to be established is how, how pervasive this was. And I say this because the United States went through a civil war over slavery. While, while our children were still be, were being ripped away and abused in these schools. They abolished slavery, but they didn't abolish what was happening to our children. Women's suffrage, that movement to, to, to secure women's rights, never quite got to native territories. And they certainly didn't get to the schools where our, where our little girls and our teenage girls were being abused. It would, this, this would be continue right through all of that stuff. So not just women's suffrage, but women, the women's movement in general. Civil rights. Martin Luther King and I Have a Dream and all that stuff was, while all that was going on, our children were still being ripped away from families. And it became such a normal thing for our children to be ripped away that it wasn't even hard to rip them away anymore. Many of our territories became complicit in it and just accepted the fact that the law required that our children be ripped away and sent to these schools. Hundreds of thousands of Native children lost family connection. I've said five generations, but it's actually closer to six generations, maybe even seven generations of our people were having our children indoctrinated, assimilated, brainwashed. And then I hear people that have the nerve to say that, well, Native people enlist in the armed forces because of our warrior spirit, our warrior spirit, our warrior culture. No, it wasn't. It was, a, it was almost 200 years of indoctrination. At the child level, it was poverty, racism, that Create an environment where serving in the same military that killed your grandparents seemed like a viable option. We need to understand and fully document the scope. Because, you know, every time I hear numbers about, you know, how many thousands of children were, you know, had this happen to or that happened to them, I, look, I don't know. I don't believe the numbers. Because you got to go back to, to 1819 when those schools were already in place and the federal government started funding them then. And understanding that some, four schools still exist today. We have to understand the full scope and scale of what was done. And, and make no mistake about it. Residential schools are the definition of genocide. All five of the, uh, of the actions that constitute genocide were done at these schools. And the fact that we've got 
nine white people, uh, two black people, I should say, but nine predominantly white people in black robes that are going to determine whether we should be able to have a preference to our kids being placed in our homes or being placed in native homes is absurd to me. And we know that the, the Supreme Court has been skewed so far to the right that this, that there's a, look, I don't like ICWA, I've said it already, but the overturning of the Indian Child Welfare Act could have devastating consequences or at least lay the groundwork for fight after fight after fight that we're going to continue to go through. And it's not like we're not fighting already. We're still fighting the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act. We're still fighting you know, the, 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 the idea of where our citizenship lies. But what's happening with this case is that we're they're attempting to reduce us to just a race. That we aren't a distinct people. That, that we're what, just we got good tans? I mean, literally, the lawyer for these Brackeens said this whole thing stems on the fact that the Brackeens don't have the right color skin. Really? Really? You're going to try to reduce our distinction to just skin color? And I know there's enough white people on that court who are going to accept that argument. I mean, there are, there are a series of things at play with this case. One has to do with, with states' rights. And frankly, that's one of the stronger arguments or, or, the, or the weaknesses of ICWA was that there was no acknowledgement of our sovereignty, not, not, or not adequate acknowledgement of our sovereignty. Nobody said Native people should have the right to, to remove and, and place children where they need to go, that we should have the right, our nations, our courts, or whatever else. I mean, there was a priority set by, by this legislation that said Native children should be placed in Native homes. But we weren't the agency involved. So this was the federal government telling state agencies what they needed to do. So that argument that this is federal government overreach trying to dictate to, fed, to state uh, agencies how to operate, I don't know how that plays out. We, we haven't, we, we've seen how, it played out, how it's played out thus far with abortion. This court is predisposed to... Um, to, bolster, to bolstering state, state authority, which is a problem for Native people because neither the state or the feds are really prepared to recognize our distinction and our sovereignty. That's why when I talk about truth and reconciliation, I say, oh, we got a long way to go with truth, but I'm not interested in reconciliation. I'm inst interested in re restoration. You can't restore the lives that were lost. You can't restore the, 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 the childhood, you know, the childhoods that were, were removed from our, from our children. But the lands that were taken during that 200 years of residential schools, could be, some of that could be restored. Our autonomy could be restored. And in every turn, when a piece of federal legislation comes down, there is a failure, a refusal to acknowledge that we are a distinct people. Every policy, while it, while it will mention words like tribal sovereignty or our culture, 
it's still, they are all still geared towards drawing us in to the American mosaic. None of it wants to recognize our distinction as distinct sovereign peoples. And therein lies the problem. But if we don't fully wrap our heads and our arms and, and, and our nations around how long this was done, how many generations were impacted by it, if we don't, if we don't do that work, and I'm not asking for a federal committee to do it, if we don't do it, but I'll tell you, we hear a lot of conversations about decolonization. And some of those same people will, who will talk about decolonization are saying, well, make sure you got there and vote. We need to assert our distinction. I mean, even at the most basic level, I mean, I've talked about it here in the Seneca Nation. The administration buildings just down the street from where I'm doing the show right now. Their address should be the Cattaraugus Territory of the Seneca Nation. And then throw the zip code on there. But instead they call it, they say, go on to New York, uh, 14070. No, we should not be allowing the, the, the townships to, to let their lines, their borders come into our territories. We shouldn't be allowing the county lines to, you know, to cross ours, nor the state line. We have to assert, look, I know there are a lot of Native people that would have a, a huge amount of problem saying that they aren't American citizens. <laughs> there are more Native people on the Canadian side who would say, don't you dare call me a Canadian. But there's not nearly enough on the U.S. side that are saying, don't, dare you, don't you dare call me an American. We still wrestle with words like Indian and Native American and American Indian. We don't even put our foot down on that. What's being argued in court is that we're all American citizens and we deserve American protections. Yeah, I, I forgot to tell you. The other two areas of this thing have to do with, with, with the discrimination. One of the arguments is, is that poor Chad is being discriminated against because he's not being allowed to allow his, his, his white affluence to be provided to these poor, primitive little creatures. Yeah, primitive indigenous creatures. And that our children are being discriminated against, racial discrimination, because they're being deprived of being able to live like white people or live or, or, or being taken in by, by affluent white people. Now, let me be clear here. The vast majority of Native kids that, that enter into the foster care and the, and the adoption processes in the United States, historically and today, today, today still, are not being adopted by affluent. They're, they're not, it's not the Andrew, uh, um, uh, Angelina Jolie's and the Madonna's or the Chad Brackeen's that are doing it. Most of the foster care system in the United States is a racket. You know, it's... It isn't these, these beautiful, wealthy white people doing it. No, it's people who are making money by, by providing foster homes 
to sometimes, you know, 10, 15 kids at a time. And they, and they get money for it. And the abuses are so well documented. The, the entire documentary, Dawnland from, uh, from Maine, is all about the abuses of foster care. It's not about, oh, yes, my, my affluent white mother would not let me uh, return to my roots here. No, that's, that is an issue because it's very difficult for white people to provide any kind of cultural integrity to a native child, especially since you don't want to let them go. And yet I'll tell you, there, with almost zero exceptions, a native child raised by white people and I'm not saying it's a terrible thing, but that native child at some point is going to say, I've got to understand this, who I am. I mean, it's like any child who's adopted at some point gets to that place and says, I want to, I want to find out who my real parents are. And it's a bigger issue when, when you're not white-skinned like your mom and dad, so you know you're different. And you don't understand how you've been deprived? Were, were, you, were you abandoned? Were you taken? Are, are your parents even alive? See, this all gets back to what five, six, seven generations of residential schools did. It severed the ties. So we as Native people, we've like been forced to, to, into accepting that those family ties might be, might be cut, and, and frankly, we're better off for it. That's what, they're, that's what they're gonna teach us. That's what they're gonna tell us. And that's what they did with language. At some point, our own people stopped teaching our children the language. After five, six, seven generations of residential schools, and the torture and torment that came with trying to manage a child that, whose first language was gonna be a native language, our, our own parents finally said, you know, it's, it's probably not worth it. It's probably not worth teaching them the language. And so they didn't. Uh, every, my father's entire generation, every aunt, every uncle, and of course, grandparents and beyond, they all spoke, spoke Mohawk. But my family, my, my siblings and my cousins, none of us did. Now, it's better now. The schools in, in, in Gunnawaga and other places in Mohawk territories have been very, very good at uh, um, doing language preservation. But that change, that generational change in teaching language was a result of these, of these schools. And of course, I haven't even talked about the influences that this Christian indoctrination has played you know, or you know, again, a specific policy towards towards children being sent to to Mormon foster care that has had a huge effect on us. I talk about it all the time about even listening to so-called the traditionals, referring to the Creator's land, and pointing to the heavens and the Creator as in God. That's not our culture, but even the most, uh, I, we, lost, we lost a family member recently. And going to the funeral services run by the Anadagas, the so-called so bastion of traditional knowledge, they talked about 
the creator's land. Well, that's not in our culture. That's Christian influence coming into, in, into our own ceremonies. And of course it was going to. There was, it's been almost 200 years of, of churches being funded by the federal government and state governments to indoctrinate our children. Well, what did you think they were going to indoctrinate the, us to? The boys are going to learn how to march and the girls are going to learn how to, how to serve white, white families. That's what the schools, that's what the schooling was all about. And I'm not suggesting that, that there wasn't, weren't a few native children along the line who became good math or, or, or good at reading or writing and that kind of stuff. Yeah, they, they, everybody tries to highlight those who went on to be lawyers or whatever else. The Ely Parkers and that kind of stuff. But let's be honest. The vast majority of Native people suffered in those schools. And even the ones who didn't know the level of suffering, because if you went into a residential school already being indoctrinated with the Christian faith, already being, already being deprived of your language, you were most of the way there for them as far as they were concerned. But it would take generations, generations that went through this process before that would happen. We can't just talk about residential schools as if it was a handful. We can't just talk about reservation or residential schools, I'm sorry, uh, Indian boarding schools as if it was just Carlisle Indian School for, for 40 years. Or, or foster care like it was just this um, Indian placement program for 40 years. It was hundreds of years. We've got to understand this full scope of the abuse, the sexual abuse, the, the torture, the psychological abuse. We can't look at the sexual abuse at these residential schools and, and somehow equate it to the, the clergy sex abuse scandals uh, that, that make all the news today, where millions and millions of dollars are being you know, doled out in settlements. Why? Because it was such a, a huge number of children abused. The scale isn't even, even the same. We're not talking about hundreds. We're talking about tens of thousands of children. And I, and I have always argued, and I'll say it once again here today, I believe much of the clergy sex abuse scandal that, that's rocked the Catholic Church and some of the Protestant religions, the Mormon Church, was born out of having this unfettered access, this, this total control over Native children for, for hundreds of years. You created the, the perfect Petri dish for abuse to take, uh, take, uh, take a hold, where parents had no say in what was happening to their children. Well, we're going to find out all that we can find out about how many children really died in these schools. And by the time the numbers are really racked up in the United States, it'll be, you know, it'll be tens of thousands of children. In fact, when the numbers in Canada are fully assessed, it'll be tens of thousands. And it'll be three or four times that in the United States. And unlike the clergy sex abuse scandals where the church 
will apologize or, or make payments or do settlements. The federal government's going to offer some pitiful settlement. I often talk, I've mentioned before about the Cobell suit. The, the class action suit that Eloise Cabell started against the, the Interior Department and the Bureau of Indian Affairs, where she sued for the mismanagement of, of Native assets. By some estimates, it may have been as much as $100 billion worth of losses of Native assets and, and, and you know, uh, dollars. And of course, you know, it's hard to even assess the value of the records that were improperly kept and lost in terms of who hold, held what deeds to what lands and that kind of stuff. It's been estimated, again, at between 40 and $100 billion. Barack Obama settled for $4 billion with the most, uh, which, with the largest portion of that $4 billion going to buying lands to give back, you know, that were unlawfully transferred in the first place. So in other words, white people got, were going to get paid again. So it's hard for me to be optimistic about what a reconciliation pitch would look like. Considering that, a, that pennies on the dollar were paid out to fairly well-documented abuses of our assets. Well, how do you how do you dole out? I mean, do you, and then you get the racial factor that comes into that. Well, do we need to assess the abuses to a native kid the same way we we would have um, addressed the abuses to you know to Chad or Karen from a white community from a white household? This is still an issue that has not had the proper analysis given to it. And I'm not talking about findings here. I'm just saying this should be an explosion. The residential school issue should be that tinderbox that we rally around and that we light up to correct so much of what took place during that era. Truth and restoration, not reconciliation. I'm John Kane, and this is Let's Talk Native.